0: Hello and welcome to Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm in the Brixton studio of Daniel Charney. Now, it's safe to say that Daniel is a man of many parts – The Israeli-born Londoner is a design educator, having taught on the design products course at the Royal College of Art and latterly at Kingston University. A curator, best known for his work at the Aram Gallery and the wildly successful 2011 V&A exhibition Power of Making – and a creative consultant, whose practice from now on has worked with the likes of the Design Museum, developer UNI, and I, and Heatherwick Studio. However, he is arguably best known for co-founding Fixperts in 2012, an organisation which, in the words of one writer, started out as a simple way of celebrating and clarifying the ingenuity and problem-solving power of design. Since then, as we shall see, it has become rather more than that. In two thousand nineteen, Daniel was awarded the Design Innovation Medal from the London Design Festival, which celebrates entrepreneurship in all its forms. Daniel, thank you very much for doing this.
1: Oh, thank you. Hopefully, uh, live up to that description.
0: <laughs> was that was that <laughs> reasonably accurate?
1: Yes, very accurate. Well,
0: good, good. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, can we start by talking a bit about the building we're in? I mean, it's important to point out this is a a working studio and office, so there is a bit of background babble. Yeah. But from the street, it And looks, we're in the seventh floor. And we're in the seventh floor. From the street, it looks like a conventional kind of office block. But when you come in here, it definitely isn't. So can we talk about what's going on here? It
1: is. It's the old uh, Lambeth Council offices, uh, but a group called Three Space have taken it over for five years to create uh, affordable workspace and create a community of uh, like-minded people but not everyone is connected to everyone it's quite diverse we're on the seventh floor as part of uh, uh, both from now on our consultancy and Fixbits, which is a social enterprise Mm. and there's loads of other social enterprises like restart and edible lambeth and library of things project brixton and so it's also a community uh, that's connected to the area and uh, it, it's a creative hub, even if it's called that.
0: So so what brought you here in the first place? We were
1: looking for a place where Fixperts would uh, be with like-minded organizations, social enterprises, and also um, the distance from home. <laughs> <laughs> well, at, from now on, we end up talking to clients about uh, new formats, uh, new ways of working, Creative hubs or hubs and the difference between hubs and uh, clusters and networks and being in one gives us an, a really good understanding of the workings. This one is particular because it's also um, sometimes we, we call it the antidote to we work. Mm. It's kind of uh, people make their own environment a lot more, I think. Um, And it's worked very well, um, but also connected us to other people, some new collaborations. Very good.
0: I mean, can we talk about Fixburt's in the first instance, which launched in 2012 with, um, you co-founded with James Carrigan initially. Yeah, Yeah.
1: initially it was a kind of micro-volunteering idea Mm. for designers, makers, engineers to go out and fix something for someone. Um, Then quite quickly I realized that it could be a very interesting learning format and I rewrote it as a learning program.
0: So when you say um, a learning program, what, what so is that? It,
1: it's actually a, um, a framework that can be taught uh, in design uh, education formats at the beginning. It's grown since then to other disciplines and also beyond the discipline. Um, but in really simple terms it's about gathering a group of people to go out into the community or somewhere meet someone then identify a problem with them then go and try and make fix up a prototype that um, they then take back to this person get real feedback from a real person and then improve it and give it they then tell the story of the person, the problem, and the fix in that order. So making a film is part of the learning experience. Teamwork is part of the learning experience. Empathic modeling, a lot of design discipline tools, uh, universal design, human-centered design, all of these are kind of packed into quite uh, easy-to-apply format. And tutors around the world, I think 41 universities now in 20 countries, wow. are teaching it to uh, teach the things they're interested in. So it might be about innovation or someone might be about sustainability and someone might be about aging well. Other people are about uh, engaging with communities. So in in Kyoto, for instance, they have this, uh, um, they call them the invisible people, so uh, layers of the campus or the Uh, society that the students wouldn't have engaged with otherwise and they have to in the tutors so people apply it to their needs and it's become uh, a format that they share and then we share all the results all these one minute films uh one to three minute films um are on this archive this archive has become the teaching tool
0: so how many films are there now
1: um, we don't quite know because people do it, we've, the, the re- most recent ones came from Mexico, from a university we've not been in touch with. They've just downloaded our free open source mm. uh, guidelines, mm. off they went. And uh, UAM, I think, they, they, I think, around make it 650 films now. Um, Our archive online has about 550 and we're still logging them in and sharing them. We create playlists and then teachers in secondary schools can use these playlists. You know, it might be about digital fabrication or it might be about um the idea of uh, working with someone older or it might they use these playlists to teach uh, design and technology sometimes other things
0: a, a playlist being a collection of of, 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 of films. films
1: that have come in from it's a user generated content mm. um it's a system that it, it's it's a curatorial uh, um construct of making it as useful for as many of the people that want to use it
0: and when you started it in 2012, did you have a sense of where it would go? Not really.
1: We kind of thought it would connect uh, designers and makers uh, back to making something for someone. Mm. Uh, so that's remained, this kind of uh, uh, using your creativity in social context. But we also, at the time, James uh, Carrigan and I were talking about uh, all the conversations we've had with people that are missing making something, sitting in front of screens, working long hours, and, oh, I love making. And we thought, okay, if you love it so much, why don't you apply it to uh, this? And here's a format. And we thought of kind of starting this um a collection of designers that volunteer and have a go. Uh, But very quickly, teachers and tutors thought, oh, this is quite interesting for students. It packs in a lot of the things we want to touch on as an introduction. And uh, when we had the valuation of experts with the Tavistock Institute, um, actually the main... Uh, benefit was to the people doing the fix fixprits, not the fixed partners who were getting the fixes. Mm-hmm. Initially, you, you kind of think, oh, all these patents and these ideas and they're very useful and can they become products? And is this an innovation platform? Is it about the benefits for the people that the things uh, that have those situations that have been fixed? But actually, it turned out that the main benefit is for those students who come in touch with other people, which is something that kind of dropped out of a lot of design education, direct contact with people, users, um, also in the discipline.
0: So, so they're learning what empathy skills? Is that what the they're, conclusion
1: they're, was? They're learning to uh, look, listen, observe, identify a problem, have a... Conversation with the real person about what works for them. So yes, empathy is part of it. User-centered skills, um, but also focusing on a person, not a market. And using your making skills to solve a problem means that you're critically engaged both with the purpose and how the materials or your idea is performing. So it brings making into that point between critical thinking and creative thinking. And that's where making is at its best. And that's kind of what power of making was about, is remembering... We're going to come on to power of making. You're
0: you're, you're leaping No, because The
1: the thing is, (laughs) fixed bits grew out of power. I know, I know. So, know. uh, So... yeah, to go back to your question, what they are learning is, um, I guess, a kind of correction of the discipline to focus on people and the environment and let the markets not be the only way that you think about design or designing. And this is interesting because also this has uh, appeared in uh, training programs of big engineering companies in Vietnam and Australia. They are using fixed spirits to connect their engineers, who are great problem solvers already, Mm. but to connect them with human-centered experience. Can I
0: ask, I mean, particularly when you started, the Mm. people who had a problem, how did you find them? How did they find you?
1: So in the pilot, we actually created a partnership with a small and wonderful organization called Shift.ms, and they sent out an email on their network, and we had six people respond, say, I agree to help you.
0: And what were those initial problems?
1: Uh, We had a young lady who had a tremor in her hand, couldn't really put her earrings in uh, properly, and that frustrated her a lot because people were telling her, use a clip-on earring, and Denise was like, no, I want the real thing, I've always wanted the real thing. And one of the experts, Flory, graduate of the RCA, made a little tweezer that you put the earring into and you click. That got a lot of attention, and in fact, when it was written about in Der Spiegel, the online uh, uh version our server collapsed because suddenly we had thousands of people watching this film and and we we, could, we were not prepared for that mm. so um other issues were there was a, I, I remember Edna who um the students in Kingston uh we ran it also as a student group the first time uh, we tried the learning format they met her in um in a sh- i think in a shop in a museum shop and they just were looking for a fixed partner and they said oh what are you what are you doing? Can we tell you about a project? So, you know,
0: well, they, they jumped on somebody in a shop.
1: Yeah, yeah, we encourage that. We yeah. ask people to find their fixed partner. It's part of this entrepreneurial kind of mindset of going out and talking to people. And, um, and Edna then said, Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. They kind of decided to, they chose one of the things that bothered her every day, which was putting her socks on. And they made the most delightful short mm. film. I don't know if you've seen it. I have, yeah, uh, I have. So Edna's Sockhorn. Um, and Edna's become a bit of a celebrity in the spirits uh, kind of uh, community because she came to our uh, first uh, teaching conference and she met tutors from 11 countries and she spoke about what it meant to her that young people came into her house, talked to her, made her something, gave it to her. And then she really participated, also enjoyed the film. Um, So so, Edna
0: was your first kind of fixbird's pin-up.
1: Yes, yes, our (laughs) celebrity. And she's really also very generous with with her insights and her uh, time for the students. And the film has been also, I think, one of our most uh, seen films. Um, You know, sometimes these films are seen by the students, their teachers, their friends. Sometimes these films catch on. So there's a group in Dublin, NCAD, and they were working with um, um, an ex rugby player in a wheelchair, and he was very busy, but he couldn't sign his name on documents. He hadn't written for 15 years, and they made him a pen holder.
0: He hadn't written for 15 years. Yeah. For why? Rugby he, he types. He
1: had a, a back injury, and right. he's in a wheelchair, and he couldn't grip. Uh, so people were holding things. He found technological solutions, but the idea of writing his own name very much uh, excited him. And when they solved it very nicely with a, a wooden...
0: Like a block, I've seen the film. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: a quite a, a nice, um, um, almost mixture between a pebble and a rock, uh, kind of wooden... Uh, bird, uh, and the pens inside. And he wrote them a note, uh, which has also become uh, really important in our kind of, uh, I guess, uh, mythology. It's that um, they, they helped him write again after 15 years, and the world needs people like them to solve problems. And that even helped us understand Fixperts a bit more in terms of the what we're for, what it's for. Um, And that has also fed in, you know, every time you come across this kind of um, very uh, emotional moment, you kind of then reflect on and you think, what happened there? And actually something that this fixed partner said has made its way all all the way into our theory of change and the way we see the organization shifting from being uh, the first shift from being about this kind of idea that designers and makers are the fixperts. to everyone can be a fixpert, and and that's a mindset that is a life skill on one hand but in disciplinary and professional uh, level it is about the human-centered design it is a disciplinary discussion so we had a split in fixperts in the way universities and disciplinary to schools and life skills and that's the thing that Grew into fix ed or fixing dot education. Yeah. So fixers, once we understood that in university level, it's about the experience of the students, and they go into social design, systems design, service design, that kind of uh, applying their um, making and their thinking to uh, logistics and systems, but experiencing it through a real person first. That's a kind of disciplinary discussion what's going on with the design discipline diversifying so much and uh, how do we kind of steer back that very important strand of people, focusing on people and and the environment, not only on markets. In schools, it's not about being even a creative sector employee in the future. It's really about life skills. It's about these uh, moments where you uh, are facing change and you have that ability to respond to it. So when we talk about fix-ed, it's about more people, more people being more capable of responding creatively to change. That's kind of the mm. and that we learned that through all these interactions and stories that we came across, and also what teachers are telling us and students, and 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 pupils in the way that they enjoy making with a purpose.
0: Because it, there is something of a zeitgeist around repair. Particularly at the moment, The the Repair Shop is this enormous show on the BBC, for instance. Do you feel you take some responsibility for this, Daniel?
1: Um, I'd say pleasure and responsibility. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing to see these things in mainstream. You know, uh, we're part of something that we would have hoped that would come earlier. Uh, But it's brilliant to see people interested in that. um, We could call it this access of care. From, Access of care. Yeah, I like. That. I guess from maintenance, or let's start even deeper from conservation, which is a highly caring and uh, creative and knowledgeable, in-depth relationship with this world, all the way through um you know repair back to what it was to fixing adapting hacking and fixing as we use it it's really a metaphor for uh it's like a core metaphor for building and making we use it quite broadly in the sense of fixing a situation or uh, we, and, and that connects to behavior looking at behavior and maybe even not doing it through materials, but through uh, uh, rethinking the order of something that could be a creative response or, you know, making a barrier or removing a barrier uh, could be the focus of a fixing, of a fix. Whereas sometimes it is because I come from, you know, product industrial design, a lot of the beginning was about things.
0: I'm glad you mentioned where you come from because I'm keen to get into your background a little bit. Mm. Um, You grew up in Jerusalem. Among um,
1: other places.
0: Amongst other places. Were you designing and making as a child?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: Your dad we was, didn't call
1: it that, but... Uh, what did you call it? It's just uh, when you need to do something, you make it or you sort it out. Sometimes you... Uh, but there are people around. My mum is an artist, mm. still active in her mid-80s. What She's kind a- of artist I mean? Metal sculptures, etchings, um, papier mâché, carbon uh, fiber—not carbon. It was uh, um, that um, glass fiber. She's worked in lots of materials, Mm. um, but there was always a sense of uh, start first with what you can make, but not as an ideal or an ethos. That was the approach. Uh, my dad was the opposite. He's the poet who you know, couldn't put together a fishing rod.
0: <laughs> and he did travel, as you alluded to. You traveled yeah, to Boston yeah, yeah, yeah. and you are in California for yeah, a while. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We, um, I think, quite uh, importantly, spent two uh, a couple of years in England in the mid-70s. In Oxford? In Oxford, yeah.
0: Is that because and, why, why were you travelling? Uh,
1: at that point, that time, was my dad was uh, researching a book for Penguin, the Penguin Book of Hebrew Verse, and wanted to be or needed to be in the library. Uh, they have a, an extensive uh, resource of... Uh, um, he was trying to prove that Hebrew wasn't a language that had stopped being talked and that it had a continuity and that it was being hijacked politically to this kind of uh, renewal of a nation. And Mm. he was saying, no, it's always been written. I can prove it through poetry. Mm. And the Bodleian Library had Spanish 16th century uh, manuscripts. He was translating them, and I was doing the index as a 11 year old, 10 year old. I was doing the graphics, not the graphics, but collating. So involved, um, and we were there for two years. And um, then we were in California, in Palo Alto, Stanford, for two years as well, '79. So I must have sat in next to some of those Silicon Mavericks, yeah. uh, Silicon Valley Mavericks in Palo Alto. I spent quite a lot of time in the foundry of the school, escaping from uh, the some of the lessons I enjoyed less.
0: Which, which lessons didn't you like?
1: I think it was called social studies. Right. in there... Because it I, seems to me,
0: I mean, judging from... I
1: was drawn to the workshop and yeah. got on very well and I learned, uh, you know, knurling. I've, it's, it's so satisfying to be able to use a lathe and discover that, uh, or casting. And um, But uh, those two years in California were also uh, quite interesting in the sense that it's a very different environment. Uh, we lived quite um it we were there because my mum had a residency in the Carl Gerassi Foundation the first of an artist residency and we were living up in the woodside remotely there weren't enough friends around so i was start making all kinds of things and um it was a, a kind of a as an a uh, single child you're also discovering what it means to be an independent child mm. it's a very different thing um so i had i had that kind of uh, kick in and um then we traveled a lot to other places around my parents work so um but always rooted in jerusalem um so
0: which is where you got your ba
1: Batalil Academy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, I was also a, a junior in an art group that used to make massive uh, sculptures, sc- sculptures from. Um, Timber and fireworks, and uh, also gl- um, ice uh, igloos with fire inside. So, always drawn to. Kind of, I wasn't the designer or an, an inventor there. I was one of the kind of younger crew, but it was very exciting to be part of a team making together.
0: So, uh, am I right in thinking? Because you talked about the fact you were a single child, but you had an older brother. Yeah, yeah. He uh, went to the Royal uh, yeah. College, right? Yes, studied design. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, uh, I've got two brothers, right. but different mums.
0: Okay. Uh, okay, but your brother was a designer.
1: He is. He, he is, is a designer. In fact, were... he's, he's a professor of design in, uh, uh, in Israel, in an institute of technology, and he's been teaching fixperts the last four or five years with his students. He's had over, I think, um, he's trained up, 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 about six, seven other teachers. They've had hundreds of uh, projects come out of there.
0: Was there a sense you were following in his footsteps?
1: Um, when I was 16, I came to help him with his degree show. So I really, you know, there must have been something in that. Um, I, uh, yes, to some extent, he he was very influential in kind of uh, offering an option out of the kind of art territory into the applied side. Um, a very uh, I think significant moment for me was uh, one day we went to visit a friend of my dad's, uh, a linguistic professor who'd been blind for many years, and my brother uh, Gad organized his room for him so he would reach things in a better way. So this kind of idea of really being attentive to people and their uh, conditions was influenced by that. But I remember doing things before that. Um, So to some extent, um, yeah, I guess the the introduction to design was definitely connected to him.
0: Because initially when you left your BA, you went into office design, I believe.
1: Yeah. Well, how did
0: that happen? Was that always an ambition? Or? No,
1: not at all. It was work. I worked uh, on office systems, a uh, bit of laboratories. Uh, office
0: systems for whom?
1: It's a company uh, called Finish. We worked with Technion in Canada and I was doing PVC edgings, you know, um, Probably one of the reasons I got involved in uh, uh, being, g- got interested in who writes the brief and uh, <laughs> who decides what needs to be done. And uh, that was, you know, working in details across engineers was uh, kind of a, a professional path that I didn't want to get deeper and deeper into. I wanted to get more involved in who thinks that it's a good idea to sit while you're working or is it a good idea to um let uh, these materials be used for that. And so th- so more kind of uh, deeper conversations about the why we design what we design. Mm-hmm. And then I des- decided to go to do the MA at the Royal College the Royal of Royal Art. College. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but I was also running a company at the time. Uh, with a friend and we were designing office, home offices. So it was 92. My BA degree show was a home office secretary because I saw people starting working at home. Hmm. And it was thinking about where the cables go and where the printer goes at home. It was quite early for that kind of uh, thinking about um, changes in the way people work. Um, But we we ran this company for three years and we designed and made everything. So one client we were working with, Ash, another client we were working with, Uh, square section tubes in metal. So it's all
0: bespoke, in other words. All
1: bespoke, a really bad business plan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So was there a moment where you thought, I'm going to chuck all this in and I'm going to go to London and I'm going to get an MA from the Royal College of Art?
1: Yeah, and and also I wanted to shift the conversations I was having. I thought I was discovering I'm better at having those conversations about why you do stuff Mm. than what is the actual detail. But I'm also, you know, I I very much enjoy that moment of generating and shaping in the workshop. So there was, a, for many years, and there was this kind of split or dilemma or, you know, only in things like fixed it's coming back together or when in the Aram Gallery when, you know, I'm curating something about prototypes and experiments and I'm able to connect back these two strands.
0: So what was your work like at the Royal College? Um... I designed a scent
1: recorder, uh, which was collecting a scent recorder. Yeah, reactivating memories through smell. Oh. Um, a piece of furniture for libraries, which was called a browser. This was before we had browsers, I think, as a as a word. And it was so. It's very much about um, the relationship, the kind of evocative, inspiring. Uh, situations that we get to, into in response to, or how things and objects and situations uh, push us into uh, the next idea. Um, you know, as a browser, it, it was a stepstool, but with a glorified name. And um, it had placed, the idea was that in a bookshop, you know, when you're holding books, but you haven't decided if you're buying them or not, you but you don't want to lose them. So you need somewhere to put them temporarily, or you might want to read a bit. So it was all about that kind of looking for inspiration in a a library. So that's what I was doing um, at the RCA at the time. Also, one more thing, I guess, I got very much drawn to the material library. Margaret Pope was the one that set it up there, and they were dismantling it. They were about to dismantle it, and I'm trying to save it.
0: When you graduated... You, you became a teacher. I mean, you literally yeah, into teaching into yeah, teaching yeah. at the Royal College of Art. Yeah, true. And uh, I'm intrigued. Was that always part of the plan? No, no, at all. How did that happen? And, and was it strange? Because presumably you ended very up teaching strange, very strange. people who had been but your colleagues. Also,
1: I had been, um, I guess, 28 when I came to the RCA. I'd had already three years of industry and I did my BA uh, before that, and I had taught already three years at Bitalel. So, this thing of studying, and then, so when you're studying, one of the things you learn, if you're looking, is how you're being taught. So, you're all the time, the one consistent thing that I've always been learning, I guess, is the learning situation and the teaching. Um, and that's become the kind of, I guess, the core of everything I do, including today. It all comes somehow connected to kind of being an educator. Mm. Um, but yes, I got involved in, at the time, Ron Arred was bringing together the furniture design department with the industrial design. And I had exactly that combination of experience, having worked in the... Furniture and having trained as an industrial designer and done a bit of plastic injection, done a bit of timber, done a bit of uh, um, kind of a mix of traditional and new technologies for then. I uh, was just very lucky. But initially I got a phone call, uh, I think a week after graduating from Ron's office inviting me for uh, an interview for work. He opened the portfolio and his partner, Caroline, was there. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, she got up and left. And he looked at me and said, um, You're unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was, uh, you know, not the thing you want to hear yeah, in a job I interview. Can see that. Um, And then he said, but, you know, you have a lot of ideas and you're interested in ideas and um, I'm just about to start this course. Would you like to try teaching? And I said, yeah, I thought that's what the interview was about. And he looked at me and from that point we understood that we can have shortcuts and conversation and it would work and we we worked together for 10 years. Mm. Um, so you were
0: at the very beginning of, of design products. As it yeah, yeah, in right. fact, I've
1: got the drawing that we did together thinking about what's the system going to be and he was looking at the AA system of those studios. Units, yeah. Units. And I said, why don't we think about uh, something more open than a unit and we thought we could use the term platform because you kind of embark on a journey and you might swap platforms. Um, and then I've still got the sketch of the first kind of year, like how do we break across platforms? And what happened there is that um, he was very open to new formats and I'm interested in new formats. So I introduced all kinds of experimental ways of getting people together or mixing between t- We invented this intensive tutorial day where people pitch a part of their project to a tutor they're not used to. So you have a grid of all the people, and you get five or six tutorials during that day. So you're improving your idea, but with people you haven't... So ma- same, same idea? Maybe, but, or maybe but not. Is, is no, but you are, you're on. allowed to change completely, right. because no one knows during right, the right. day. So it's very intensive, and you are free in a way and uh, if something works you do it you talk about it more if something doesn't you change tact and that's very much a process that i appreciate that you can dislocate from an idea and move to another one or you're starting a number of ideas and that's why i'm also a massive fan of starting to make while you're still not sure what you're making because some of the thinking that happens is generated through the making thinking through making if you want to call it that, I just yeah. did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how did it feed into your your practice? So at the time I
1: started curating the Aram Gallery, yes, uh, two thousand and two, I think. Two
0: thousand and two, according yeah. to the CV, <laughs>
1: <laughs> as invited to uh, Zev Aram had um, been visiting uh, universities and collecting graduate works for industry to see uh, years before, and he wanted to revisit this format. Um, but when we met, I thought this is actually something that a lot of other people are doing. You know, Designers Blog, the Design Museum. A lot of people were already visiting uh, graduate shows and collecting.
0: We should probably explain hmm. where the gallery is. I mean, Aram is a big shop in Covent Garden. Yeah. The gallery was on the, the top floor and became this kind of, as you are going to describe, I imagine, this kind of experimental Well, the, this space. was the challenge. It's yeah. in
1: an amazing retail environment. Yeah. And it's the third floor and the... Uh, The challenge is to create a cultural space which is different from the store and different from the showroom but actually complements it and brings new people in. And um, one of the things that um, we agreed on was that graduate work is interesting but there's also very mature experimental work which is interesting. So we um, shifted the... Description of the gallery to experimental or new. And that allowed for this new format to emerge, which was prototypes and experiments, which I think they're still running. They're still doing. Yeah. 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 Uh, which meant also that as a gallery, one of the things that uh, Zev agreed is that it wouldn't be a commercial space so I could go in and have conversations with people in their studios and bring in unfinished things. And that became much more interesting for me, bringing in things that people had on their shelves rather than already in the store. So
0: you're under no commercial pressure in that sense?
1: In that gallery, no. Mm. No, that Mm. was part of... Also because as a uh, practitioner, I couldn't be there. I was teaching... And I couldn't run a gallery properly as a gallerist. And also I couldn't promise that to uh, designers or artists or jewelers that we were showing to represent them. So we just took a different tact. Mm. And I think it was one of the early formats of a a design gallery that had a a program around the process of design. Um, Prototypes and Experiments did another thing which grew into maybe the thing that interested me very much beyond the actual experiments of materials and bringing together pieces of metal and pieces of resin and pieces of, you know, fabric, it brought together different communities. And that was, I think, the seed for power of making because it was about different communities of practice.
0: Mm. I mean, can we talk, you alluded to power of making just now, which I guess in some ways, maybe you don't see it as this, but maybe the zenith of your curatorial career. Is Zenith after or before? Uh, it's the height. <laughs> Should we say the height? The height of your uh, okay. curatorial career. Um, it was wildly successful. It featured an array of things uh, that I guess involved skillful making. Uh, there was a coffin, a saddle, there was a camera, there was a six-necked guitar, uh, shotguns, there was pieces of fashion, pieces of art, pieces of science. Uh, it wasn't all handmaking though, no. was it? There was a 3D printer in there as well. Yeah
1: next to the dry stone walling yeah
0: yeah so it was important, it was important to that the show ran a gamut
1: yeah critical i mean that the you say skill but it was imaginative use of skill so it wasn't enough that something was really well made but it was something that there was a kind of imaginative aspect to the way it was done And that meant that it raised the bar on which of, if there's a saddle, which saddle, if there's a prosthetic, which prosthetic, and so on. So it really was about the relationship between imagination and skill.
0: And how did it come about, Daniel? Did you rock up? Because it was a V&A and a and cross Council exhibition. Yeah, I joined their second. And did they come to you and say, this is what we want to do? Or did you have this that you delivered to them?
1: um, They approached with a brief. Uh, which I think was framed around contemporary issues in craft, and they had a kind of temporary working title around traces of the hand. Um, it was very exciting to get, but I also didn't quite connect to the title or the direction because I thought traces sounds like something bad happened. And the hand, it's no longer true in terms of where craft is in the world, in the industry, Um So there was a steering group from both organizations and I was really thinking, what is the thing that they share? And I went into their kind of mission statements and I found this sentence about uh, inspiring future makers. And I thought, okay, this is a good place where they meet and my interest meets and what I think is needed. It also hit me at a time when I was beginning or already, not just beginning, I was seeing a very upsetting uh, trend in uh, students' relationship with making in the workshop, afraid of machines, going there very late in the the process, technicians were making more than they used to, um, and I thought this isn't really uh, a positive direction. We need to kind of remind people that making is is a way of thinking, it's a valid it's not instead, it's a valid uh, creative resource. Uh, but also you kind of, you look outside the discipline, you look at people's relationship with materials and making and the distance that manufacturing has created and the way people deal with food or with what they're wearing and repair is one of those aspects. Um, and so it was really a perfect storm in terms of timing, interests, and also the i the response I had to this idea of l- focusing on making was resistant.
0: Well, I was going to say because because I was thinking about because you th- were there, no, at the time. Yeah, around- no, I was editing Crafts, uh, uh, which was a magazine about making. Um, I mean, in some ways, it struck me as quite a brave thing to do. Kraft hadn't gone through the Renaissance that maybe it has now. Uh, I, when I was doing my research, I found the art critic of The Telegraph, Alistair Souk, when he was reviewing the show, he summed it up. And I suspect that many people thought this way, that Craft, he wrote, is such an off-putting word with connotations of amateurism and a reactionary attachment to time-honored traditions. Um, did you think you were taking a risk when you agreed to do it?
1: Well, working with the V and A and the Craft Council is a high risk yeah, in terms of you only get to a go at that very rarely. Um, but not in terms because for me craft is so much part of a continuum. I'm not a crafts person. I'm not a maker as such. I'm not I look at the activities and I admire people who have those skills or the, those ideas and the pursuits, but I did understand that there was a a, a kind of misunderstanding of how much craft is in industry. That thing I knew from being a product designer, industrial designer, or technology designer, whatever you want to call it today. So the risk here was really um, about bringing those uh, all together and maybe not managing to come up with uh, something that unites them. The way I saw it at the time was that, um, you know, when you're doing a drawing and you're thinking about where the light's coming from, there's a kind of point that is shared with, if you have one light source, like all the lines come to everything. And I imagine these different groups or different, you know, the blackness and the fashion designers and the, um, car makers and all all of these are communities. You know, glass people are different from the blacksmiths and mm. their cultural... Tribes, we
0: call them you now. tribes. is, this is if a fashionable but word.
1: But if you take one thing they all share or we all share, it is making. So at that kind of vantage point, we all share making. And the point was to say, we all share this. It's a shared knowledge and we need to remember this and share it on and continue it. So... Um, Craft for me is, mm, I don't see it in the way that he described it at all. I I see it as something that is very much part of industry and is everywhere. So it wasn't a risk in the sense that, can you show this? That was easier to do than you would imagine, because really it is everywhere. Uh, The the skill level and the knowledge and tradition and all the things that we, like if you say, what is craft? This ingenuity, knowledge of materials, iterative processes, uh, you know, understanding connection to the world. And all these characteristics of craft are, are out there in so many places and people just don't really see them as craft. So that was not a risk. I think the risk was trying to bring these different groups under one roof um, and kind of saying we all share this and we need to step out of this Um kind of uh, oppositional state of who's more important than who. I was worried about how craft people might relate to the idea of making and look down on it in the same way that maybe art looked down at craft Mm. and all those tensions. Mm. And it was um, also very exciting and timely, I guess. It hit the right time. And also something about not focusing on the people who do it, but on the knowledge, I think helped a lot. Um, And it was also about the ways that um, access to knowledge is changing. you know. So we're learning again from people through computers, it's not like this computer that is blocking us from connecting to people. And that was a point that was really nice to make in the DIY area. But putting really exquisitely made things next to inventive, hacked, fixed, repaired things and saying, We're learning from them all the time. It's not about the thing, but the knowledge it's carrying and that that knowledge should and does belong to all of us. And it's about this social fabric that is about connecting between uh, people through the knowledge, this continuity of knowledge. And that's something that when we started working... The Craft Council and the v all agreed that this was a really important message. So when I brought a cake or nail art or a Lego um, champion next to uh, a glass uh, sculptor and a sugar sculptor and a gun um, barrel maker and, and carve all these things suddenly made sense to be together because... They were, you know, um, about being part of the same world and being inspiring for people in the future to be able to uh, do this and more.
0: And also, obviously, it laid the groundwork for FixBurts that came subsequently the year later. Yeah, 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 it did. Yeah. And for Maker
1: Library Network well. As I was well. going to ask yeah, you about that. Yeah, it it's was... like you've read my question Oh, you're, no, you're I, yes, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You see that mirror behind you. Yeah.
0: I mean, can we talk about the Maker Library yeah. Network?
1: There was something frustrating with the power of making where people came out talking about it. And I wanted a kind of more applied version. Uh, so, Fix Spirits came out directly of approaching James and at the time Suguru to do something together. Um, Suguru
0: is this just so material know, that was yeah.
1: exhibited. It's a moldable glue, and it was one of the exhibits in the uh, DIY area next to other materials. It also raised the idea that there's a community of knowledge around materials and objects and um, this. DIY is actually DI, do it together. And we thought, yes, so Fixprits was a kind of, what can we do together next? And as I told you, that was not a, originally a, a learning program, but then it grew into what it grew. But Maker Library Network came uh, from the British Council asking for a similar project like power making in South Africa. But in their brief, it also said... We want to do uh, something that will connect young makers in the UK with young creatives in South Africa. And uh, we traveled, I asked to travel with a group of people that might be part of the project. Um, and so there's about six of us traveling around uh, uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, meeting young creatives and thinking about it. And I realized that doing a big exhibition in the center of town is not going to be about access for these people. Mm. It's the opposite. And so I looked at other formats, decentralized formats. I learned a lot from the fab uh, fabrication, Fab Labs, the MIT model, which is an idea that you can set up a workshop that's accessible to public, um, but they share knowledge, they share uh, some targets, you know, and that's also become... Uh, very much a sustainability drive about reducing waste in cities. Fab City Global grew out of it. I was interested in this decentralized um, model and also FixPits is a decentralized model Mm. in a sense. Mm. There's no center as such. It's about these different places. And um, Maker Library Network came also as a response to the British Council's tradition of working with libraries. But what if it was about making? and what if there was a kind of agreement for each person in the network to uh, share their books teach a skill and sh- and show someone else's work so there was a kind of formula right a bit like in fixbirds there's a formula yeah yeah and then it gets adapted to the context so some people uh, were teaching how to use a sewing machine sharing 10 books and showing their neighbors ironmongery uh the books
0: presumably would be related to sewing. The the books were the, fir- the In core that context. of the books.
1: The core of the books was a bibliography, a reading list that we, we collated and the um, British Council actually gave that first group of books and people added the books that were relevant to what they're doing. So they all shared that core uh, reading list and we also did the parallel online so it was as digital as it was physical so people could see what other people were doing, people could see what they were reading, they could see what what happened there is that actually we started connecting. Um, Makerversity had one of the first uh, Maker Libraries in their entrance and we connected in them Somerset House. in Somerset House yeah. and then a group in uh, Cape Town in Woodstock... Uh, group called thinking and we ran a project between them and that kept on growing until there were 16 different maker libraries in also in Mexico and in Turkey and uh, we had temporary ones and we had mobile ones and the great caravan one in uh, Edinburgh uh, with and um they met once or twice a year and, and so it was a peer to peer learning environment um, but it brought in this idea that you are connecting through making rather than you are connecting for making. Yeah. So that differentiation has become really important, this idea of what are you making for? Are you making in order to make the things or are you making in order to improve your making skills or are you making in order to connect to people or are you making a social gathering through making. So for making and through making has become a really strong distinction for us here at From Now On. And we, when we talk to people about what their makerspace is for, is it for making small batch production or is it for making prototypes for manufacturing like the Central Research Laboratory, which is a high level advanced makerspace? Or is it about... Um, We worked with uh, North Carolina Makerspace, which is a craft makerspace, which is very much about young crafts, practitioners uh, evolving their practice, but connecting to community. So it's much more open to public. And so how you use making in terms of its social role um, is something that we learned through all these encounters.
0: You mentioned from now on, uh, so you've had this consultancy running mm. alongside Fixperts that, as we yeah. uh, suggested in the opening, uh, has worked for people like uh, the developer, you and I, for the Design yeah. Council, for or Thomas Heatherwick. Um I mean, you, you describe yourself as creative strategists and cultural programmers. Mm. And what does that mean practically?
1: So we, we talk about, you know, engagement a lot with ideas and learning. Um, in those environments. But um, it's about delivering programs, formats, and propositions. These are the three things that end up... You know, when you talk about cultural programs, what are they for? Uh, Or who is it... Who is the community that they are? uh, And that's the... That's the key thing is that while we were working and, and from now on is co-directed with Dee Halligan and she's been involved in all these projects that we've talked about mm. and a lot of the practice that, you know, you have a name, but actually we are a collaborative practice. A lot of people are involved. So, um, But Dee has been very much a person that comes from bringing in interest in in audiences and data and engagement and then the thing is to turn that into a creative proposition. And um, so it's always about a relationship to culture, culture being ideas, really. So it, it's about this idea of uh, um, not the sense of transaction. Uh, of uh, The program is not, I'll give you a cafe and you give me uh, credibility. It is about creating something that the community needs and uh, might serve for a longer-term relationship. and build up the. Does make sense? Yet. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay,
0: but in the sense of, say, take the you and I example. Who, yeah. when you were working with them, was called the Cathedral Group. Yeah. What have you What have you done for them? What does from now on do? With so they were like
1: working uh, on Hayes and Hillingdon, the old vinyl factory area. And they had a notion that they wanted a makerspace in the sense of uh, for the public to come in and use it, but there was no public that could that wouldn't make sense there. Um, And we were invited to look at the so what we. Proposed learning the history and heritage of the place, of the central research laboratories and the innovation, the connections to Brunel and the local you know, potential of uh, and history of innovation and making. We kind of said, Why don't you think about this direction of, in this digital era, uh, bringing back more of the physical? Where East London is very much about the digital. Why doesn't West London complement it and connect back to the story of? Uh, Uh, making and in this Industry 4.0, which is sometimes called this Mm. kind of new technologies where you can actually manufacture, again, small batches and prototype. And so we came up with this idea that it would be uh, an accelerator, which is now active, and it would lead to small companies setting up and a co-working space. And so it became a model for you and I, which they then moved to other places or... Uh, so what we did there is come up with a program that fits the the conditions and the potential. It's a proposition.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Daniel, I'm very aware mm. that uh, our time is nearly up. So it's that kind of final question of what your future plans are. More fixing? More consultancy?
1: Definitely more fixing. I mean, we need a lot of that, don't we? Um, there's a lot of... Uh, things that could be different and um, a lot of people that are interested to imagine alternatives. In the fixed-ed arena, we're looking really after our experience with trying to get into school system and finding it very difficult. We're looking at the future rather than now and trying to... See if we could come up, being very applied, can we come up with a resource of who's doing interesting things and publish something that uh, can show new models, new formats for learning. Project-based learning is something that is hard to do now. We think it could be amazing for schools to engage with that. And so we're bringing people together to collect a kind of resource and uh, that's our project this year. Every year we do a project. Last year we did fixed Camp for 9 to 14-year-olds with the Royal Academy of Engineering. That was exciting, but it's one example of a format. We know other people are doing other exciting things, so we want to curate something useful.
0: Daniel, that was fascinating. Thank you so, so yeah. much for your time.
1: Thank you, Grant. It's uh, always uh, interesting discovering what comes out when
0: you're asked a question. <laughs> And to learn more about Daniel's work, go to fixingeducation forward slash FixBurts. Meanwhile, you can find out all about From Now On at www.fromnowon.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.